now you finally get to sit down. <laughs> well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. You have heard me often remark, as you turn in your Bibles to Luke 16, you have heard me often remark about the beauty of expository preaching and getting in a book of the Bible and just following that through. Because it, it keeps me from doing things like preaching hobby horse ideas and, and, and dealing with issues. But every once in a while, when you preach expositorily, you get a text of scripture that you honestly, that I honestly say, God, really? This week? Seriously? And I'll be honest with you. I spent Tuesday and Wednesday in my office coming up with a hundred reasons not to preach this message this week. And I could have come up with about 200 more this morning in my office because I was really, this morning in my office was just a big second guessing session. Like, you idiot, why did you do this to yourself? We're in Luke chapter 16 this morning, and we're going to just cover one verse this morning. We introduced the verse last week, but I think it's so important that we understand what God has to say about marriage from His Word. I think it's so important that we understand what God has to say about this term that gets so casually thrown around, the idea of divorce. Last week we saw that the Pharisees upheld the law, but in practice they really dishonored the law by the way they interpreted it. And it was never more seen in the way that they treated divorce. And I want to be honest with you, Christians today, people who claim to believe the Word of God are really casual in the way we treat divorce. We are. Because we don't see it the way God sees it. And divorce has become a controversial subject in the church. You bring up the subject of divorce. Some of you this morning, when I even mention it, are like, are you kidding me? He's going to talk about divorce the Sunday after Thanksgiving? Well, we are getting to the divorce season, if you want to really be honest. It's the holiday season. This is when couples decide that it's time to just throw it all in because they don't get their little Christmas Hallmark movie moments like they're supposed to get. And you think I'm being funny, but I'm not. I want to say to us this morning that the only reason that divorce is a controversial subject for Christians is, is because we don't take the time to understand what God has to say about it. And this morning, if nothing else is accomplished, and I don't dream for a second that the, every marriage in our church is falling apart. That's not why I'm preaching this. I'm preaching it because this is where we come to in God's Word, and I'm preaching it because your marriage, if you're married this morning, your marriage is really important. I'm preaching it this morning because if you're here this morning and you're considering marriage or you think that marriage might be on your horizon, it's really important what God has to say about how you approach marriage. And I'm preaching it this morning, quite honestly, because I know in this room there are lives that are affected or have been affected deeply by divorce, and you have been mistreated by God's people. I grew up in a church, not grew up, I spent my early adult years in a church where if you were divorced, you were considered to be persona non grata. You couldn't teach Sunday school. You couldn't hold any office in the church. You were just expected to show up and smile and be divorced with the big red letter D on you. Anybody else have that experience in a church? Yeah, we would sing songs like grace, grace, God's grace, but not for the divorced. And if we truly believe in God's grace, then we've got to be able to see grace when it comes to our marriages, too. Have you figured out, those of you who are married, that, that the one thing in your life that requires the most grace is to be married to your spouse? Have you figured that out? Because you're perfect and your spouse is not, right? Exactly. So it requires a lot of grace. Requires a lot of grace. I can say that because my wife's not here this morning. And so this morning, 
I want us to begin here in Luke 16, verse 18, and we're going to do something different than we normally do. We're going to, we're going to kind of go through the whole scriptures to see what God has to say about marriage and divorce this morning. Because I think it's so important that when we leave here this morning, one, that if you're married, that you are solidly committed to that marriage. Because God wants you to be. If you have experienced the, the awfulness of divorce, that you understand there's grace for that. And that if you're considering being married, that you, that you don't take it lightly and you don't just rush into it because that's actually all, you know, you meet, you fall in love, and you get married, and, that, and happily ever after. Any married couple in this room would tell you, you meet, you get married, and it ain't happily ever after. It requires work, does it not, married couples? Lots of work. So let's pray this morning, and let's begin to unpack what God has to say about this subject of marriage, divorce, remarriage, all these things. Father, I'm so thankful this morning that I don't have to stand up here and just share my opinion because my opinion is just worthless when it comes to this. My thoughts don't begin to even encompass your thoughts at all. I'm grateful that you've given to us the Word of God, and in the Word of God, you have clearly defined for us what marriage is all about, and you, you help us because we make a mess of our marriages. Every single one of us who's married in this room, who's listening online this morning, we make a mess of our marriage. And so you, you have, in your Word, given to us what we need. I pray that we tap into it this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'm about to say to you, hopefully you will understand this, is not my opinion about marriage. I get asked more about marriage and divorce and remarriage than any other subject. I do. PD, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Honestly, my opinion doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. I am a bleeding heart softy. I'll go on record as saying that. God isn't always that soft in his word, and I think we're going to see that this morning. And so we come to Luke chapter 16 and verse 18, and Jesus on the heels of dealing with the Pharisees who had brought in basically you know, an accusation against him in verse 14, they're ridiculing him because of his discussion with them about money. Jesus just calls them out. And in verse 18, he says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. If you were a Pharisee hearing that, you were just like stabbed in the heart. Because Pharisees were notorious for their self-righteousness. They were also notorious for this. If they didn't like their wife, they just found a reason and they found a new one. That's what Pharisees were known for. And so Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Church, Jesus' words or PD's words I just read? These are Jesus' words. Should we take those pretty seriously? Is it in God's book here? We better take it seriously. And so... Jesus is exposing the, this corrupt and, 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 and just contemptuous view of the law that, that the Pharisees have, and he's going to use Exhibit 1, divorce. Now, to help us understand why the Pharisees have this view, we better go back and look into the law and see what they were using, even if they were misusing it. We better go look and see what was in the law. What were they proof texting this with? I'm so glad you asked. You get to go with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy is probably the book that if you set out in January or February to read through your Bible, Deuteronomy is probably where you petered out. Am I right? Am I right? Because you got in there and you're like, didn't I read a bunch of this stuff already in Leviticus? The whole meaning of Deuteronomy is it's the second telling of the law, okay? God's law was so important, he not only gave it to us once in the book of Leviticus, he gave us a twofer in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? That's why it, he does it, because he wants to emphasize just how important it is. 
And at the beginning of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, here's what God has to say. God is going to deal, and he's going to have Moses write this down. It's called Moses' Law, but it's God who's writing this, okay? When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, the first husband, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is the exact text that the Pharisees pointed back to, and that when the Pharisees, as we're going to see a little bit later on, are arguing with Jesus about marriage and divorce, this is the text that's in their mind. This is the part of Moses' law where they have found their loopholes to allow them to do all the divorcing they want to do. Look with me at verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in her, in her eyes, or in his eyes, Women, look up here for a second. That sounds really like male-dominated chauvinism, doesn't it? Women, come on, be honest, doesn't it? Does, doesn't it? Because, because here's, what, here's what is being said, okay? The man comes and takes you to be his wife like you're some kind of property, right? And, and, and you don't make him happy. You don't... You find no favor in his eyes. Like, so, so what's implied here is, is that women were supposed to, like, and, and under the law it was being abused, that women were supposed, all they lived for was to please their husbands. Every woman knows you can't do that, right? Right? You can't do it. But God here was very clear. No favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That word is key for our understanding of this, some indecency in her, okay? That word indecency means improper sexual behavior, okay? Immediately, we think of adultery, but just go back with me maybe a page or two in your Bible. God had already taken care of adultery in marriage. You want to know what God's solution was in the Old Testament law for adultery in marriage? You die, Look at chapter 22 and verse 22. Look what God has to say here. In the Old Testament under the law, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge all evil from Israel. God doesn't have a high view of adultery. Okay? God doesn't have a high view of adultery here. That's Old Testament law. You say, well, we're not under Old Testament law. Does the Old Testament law still apply to today, people? God does not take a light view of adultery. So obviously what he's talking about here in chapter 24 and verse 1 is something else apart from adultery. He's already dealt with adultery. What is he saying here in verse 1? What he's saying here is some kind of deviant, improper, shameful sexual behavior. And if that happens, Moses said this, under God's inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses said this, you write her a bill of divorce. You write, her, you write out a bill of divorce, you take it to the center of town, you get it confirmed by the other men who are the, the elders of your, of your village where you live, and you say, I'm divorcing my wife and here's why. Okay? We're not going to go into what this deviant, improper sexual behavior is, but let's put it this way, it has to be pretty serious, Okay? Here's how the Pharisees interpreted that. And these are actual cases that are recorded in Jewish history. If your wife was a poor cook, indecent behavior, off with her head. If she didn't give you a son, that is indecent behavior, off with her head. If she was not as beautiful as another woman you saw, guess what? That's indecent. And that's how the Pharisees viewed this law, and that's how they interpreted it. Does it sound much different than the reasons we give today for divorcing spouses? Church, be honest with me. We live in a throwaway society. 
Don't believe me? Just drive around town on trash day. We live in a throwaway society. And so we are conditioned to think that because it's not making me happy, I can end this. And I want to tell you that is a lie from the pit of hell. So Moses' law didn't prescribe divorce. It acknowledged that there were some times that it was necessary, and it gave a remedy, and it gave direction concerning it. Okay? The Pharisees, though, were responsible for knowing all the law and the prophets, were they not? And so turn with me to the very last book in the Old Testament, because they conveniently forgot some passages when it came to marriage and divorce. The book of Malachi, the book of Malachi chapter 2, question for you church, let's make sure you're tracking with me, would Malachi fall under the law and the prophets? Would his writings fall under that? Yeah, okay, so, so here's what the prophet Malachi writes, okay, here's what God is saying through Malachi. If you go to chapter 2 with me, notice, notice what he says. Verse 13, he says, this second thing you do, this is God talking with his people, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offering, accepts it with favor from your hand. So here's what he's saying. You guys come to me pleading, you're crying, you're not taking my offerings, God, you're rejecting me, and we're doing everything we can to please you, God. Why are you being so mean to us and cruel? Verse 14, but I say to you, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Stop right there. When God puts together a marriage, he puts it together with a covenant. When God chooses to use the word covenant, he means binding. He means binding. Kind of like some of you poor people who live in places where they have homeowners associations with covenants. Are those things binding? They're the worst. Right? Here we've got God putting together a marriage and he does it with a covenant. Which helps us to understand something here. There's actually three parties involved in every marriage. There's husband, there's wife, and who's the third party, church? God himself. God himself is involved in this. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Here's how God's involved. God's in that process that you and I have a hard time understanding to to become one. And let's be honest, most marriages are in trouble today because couples don't understand that to become one. Most marriages today that are in trouble are two trying to be two, but try to be one, but try to be two, try to be one, and it doesn't work. The only way a marriage is going to work is if two become one. You say, well, we're not one right now, we're in trouble. Guess what? Who does the making of one? It's God's spirit there in verse 15. There's always hope for a marriage, people. There's always hope for a marriage. What was God seeking, he says, godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Notice how God is directing the attention to who in this marriage. Men, who is he drawing the attention to here? Who does God hold responsible for marriages? Because he's made you the leader. Let's understand something. Marriages where the wife takes charge don't work well. They don't. Now, you didn't hear me say I hate women, okay? That's not what I'm saying. God's plan is that that a man will lead in his marriage. It's not that a man will dominate his wife. It's not that a man will abuse his wife. It's not that a man will treat his wife like she's dirt, but that a man will lead his wife. What does God have to say about divorce? Look at verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. That's an interesting term there, covers his garment with, vi- with violence. I believe that the way the New American Standard interprets that, that Hebrew phrase is, God hates divorce. 
So let's understand something here from the Old Testament. God didn't put divorce in the Old Testament law because he thought it was a legitimate thing that should be happening all the time. He put it in there as, a, as, an, as an allowance, knowing that there was going to be these situations. In fact, Jesus, we're going to see here in just a few minutes, said it this way, because of the hardness of your hearts, divorce was put into the Old Testament law. But let's understand, the very last book that we see in the Old Testament, what's God's view on divorce? He hates it. Now that may come, for some of you who have experienced divorce, that may come just like as a punch in the face right now, right? It may come as a punch in the face. But let's understand, God hates divorce, but God doesn't hate divorcees. Can I say that again? God hates divorce, but God doesn't hate divorcees. Why would God hate divorce? Let me give to you three ideas here at this point in the message as to why God would hate divorce. Number one, God is holy and God hates all sin. So he's going to hate divorce. Divorce is the result of sin, is it not? Divorce is the result of two sinful people joined together in a marriage, in this covenant, and because they continue to sin against one another, they decide that the best thing to do is just to continue to sin and break it all up, right? God's holy, he hates sin. So the, one of the number one reasons that God hates divorce is because he hates sin. Secondly, and I think this is big in the mind of God, God hates divorce because God is the one who designed and instituted marriage. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 2. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 2. I think one of the things that we get wrong in our society today is, and because of the way our, our legal system works and, and courts and everything is, is we get the idea that the state is responsible for marriage. Because after all, you have to go get a license to get married. And so we somehow think that because I have to get a license that it's the state who's in charge of marriage. Let's understand something. Marriage is a divine institution that came directly from the heart and mind of God. Okay. Honestly, if the state told me that I couldn't have a license anymore to perform marriages, I would say, fine, take your license and go jump. I'm going to still do marriages because I'm a minister of God. Okay? It's not the state's idea. God designed marriage. Genesis chapter 22. So in Genesis chapter or 20, I said 22, it's Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we have this account of Adam, and Adam's naming all these animals. And as he's naming all these animals, what does he notice as he names all the animals? There's always a corresponding animal, right? There's a Mrs. Lion and a Mr. Lion. There's a Mr. Orangutan and a Mrs. Orangutan, right? There's a Mr. Possum and a... I still don't know why God made possums. I'm still wondering about that one. It's a question I have for God when we get to heaven. Why the possum? But they all have corresponding partners, do they not? And then all, Adam's looking around, and what, what does he say? Where's mine? Where's mine? I don't have one. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, one that corresponded to him. So God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, and he brought her to man. Then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And now here's what God has to say in response to that. Therefore, it's like Moses, when he's writing this, he almost, and this is under inspiration, he's like, okay, here's God's commentary on what just happened here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and he will hold fast or he will cleave. He will not let go to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Whose responsibility is it, men, to hang on? Men, whose responsibility? Hang on with all your might, men. But part of that hanging on is, is to make yourself and conduct yourself in such a way that she wants to hang on to you. Then he goes on to say that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, this is a pretty intimate relationship, is it not? Hello, church? 
These are God's words, not mine. Don't get uncomfortable. Don't look down like, he just said naked in church. This is a pretty intimate thing here we got going on, right? God intends this to be an intimate thing. Okay? Why does God hate divorce? Because divorce is a rejection of what God created, and what God created was very good. There's a third reason why I believe God hates divorce. When you fly through the scriptures and you come to Ephesians chapter 5, what does God use marriage to illustrate in Ephesians chapter 5? He uses marriage to illustrate the beauty of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. And let's understand something here. The church doesn't make that relationship beautiful. Jesus makes that relationship beautiful. And so, because of these reasons, God hates divorce. Jesus himself taught about divorce. Go with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. So, we have seen, as we've gone through the book of Luke, that the, that the uh, Pharisees did their best to try to trip up Jesus, right? They were always looking for a way to trip him up. Well, when we come to Matthew chapter 19, we find out in verse 2 that large crowds are following him. And in verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What's the conundrum that Jesus is in? I want to help you to understand the conundrum that they think they put Jesus in. Jesus isn't really in a conundrum, but they think they put him in one. Because if he says it is lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, then whose position has he taken? He's taking the Pharisee position, right? But if he says it's not lawful, what has he done with the general population that are there? They're going to be upset with him, right? Like, how dare you judge my marriage, Jesus? You have no idea what it's like to be married to that horrible man or that horrible woman. How dare you judge my marriage? When he, when he gets the question... I love how Jesus responds. Wouldn't you love to have the wisdom of Jesus when you get hard questions? Well, take a cue from what Jesus does here. What does he respond with? Verse 4, he responds with what? The Bible. He says, have you not read that he, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and he said, therefore a man shall leave his father, his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Church, where did we read that? Genesis 2. Now, notice what Jesus does. Jesus does what he does with any part of the Old Testament. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus is preaching, he takes an Old Testament principle and then he adds something to it? This is what Jesus is going to do now. Look at, look at this. Verse 6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What? Therefore God has joined together. Let not man what? How many of you have been to a wedding and heard that? And thought that was just pastor speak at the end of the thing? No, that's God speak. That's God speak. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so Jesus then says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Let's understand what Jesus is saying here. Sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. It's where we get all these sexual sins. But let's understand the context of this. What is the greatest sexual sin you can commit in marriage? Adultery. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And what Jesus is saying here is, in the context of marriage, that a divorce that doesn't result from adultery actually will cause adultery if those, if those parties get remarried. And let's understand something here. Who is the one who's free to remarry under Jesus' teaching? The one who's committed adultery or the one who has been sinned against? It's a big thing that I'm seeing in the American church. 
And I understand that grace is, is important and grace, is, grace abounds, but, but let's understand something here. And, I, and I've witnessed this. Marriages that have been broken up because of adultery, horrible things that happen, and, and both parties, are they, they work it out, but they still decide they're going to go separate ways. But both parties feel like they're free to remarry. According to God's word, who's free to remarry here? The one who's been sinned against. Does that mean that God doesn't forgive the one who's committed adultery? No. But what he's saying is, you've committed adultery. You can't handle marriage, is what he's saying. Notice what the disciple said. The disciple said, if, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Do you think the disciples understood the weightiness of what Jesus just said there? But notice Jesus, he said, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. And, and I want you to understand something here this morning. Maybe you're single here this morning, and your heart's desire is that you, all you want from life is to be married. Let's understand something here this morning. And I know it's easy to accuse me because I'm so happily married. <laughs> God didn't make us all to be married. That doesn't mean that God made some of us to be lonely and miserable. If God didn't make us all to be married, that means he made us for something better if I'm not supposed to be married. Marriage is not the be-all, end-all. And one of the things that the, that the church has done is that it has turned marriage into this little God, little G-God that we worship more than we worship the one true God. Now, if you're married here this morning, don't hear me say that your marriage is not important. But your marriage is not the be-all, end-all. Guess what? In heaven, you're not going to be married. And I think you're going to be just fine. Amen? I can't imagine life without my wife. But somehow in heaven, it's going to be better. Let's understand something here. That, that Jesus allowed for divorce... And what did he allow for divorce? What was the one thing that Jesus said that, 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 should, that if you divorce, you can remarry? It was for what? Adultery. Are we clear on that, church? Are we clear on that? Okay, but, but we've heard from Moses. We've heard from Jesus. Did other people in the Bible, did God speak through other people in the Bible about marriage? Yes, he did. He spoke through the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 5 I'm not going to spend the whole time. Wives, just relax. I am not going to hammer you to submit this morning. But let's look. Let's look at the sum of Ephesians chapter 5 this morning of what God says a healthy marriage looks like. Let's just go to the sum of it there at the, at the verses 31 through 33 in Ephesians 5. How does God sum up this whole subject on marriage? Here's what he says. Here Paul is reaffirming the words that Jesus gave that came all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Do you see it there in verse 31? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay? If Moses has said it, and Jesus has said it, and now Paul is saying it, is that a big idea that two become one? And yet my heart grieves because there are marriages that are represented in our church family where we're trying to do this solo. Two solo pilots are not going to be able to fly the same way. There's something to this two becoming one. And maybe you're dealing with some marriage issues right now. I would begin right there, how two can become one. Because chances are, if you're having conflict in your marriage, you're not one, you're two. Paul goes on to write, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Stop there. Men, if you don't love your wife as much as you love yourself, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And you know what? The second part of this verse isn't going to happen. If you don't love your wife as much as you love yourself, she ain't going to respect you. She has no respect for that. 
single men in this room that want to get married one day so you can have somebody make you, you know, all your favorite recipes and, and do your laundry for you, stop loving yourself now because it's a hard thing to break. Am I not right, men? I'm almost 55 years old, and guess what? Who my number one love is? That's why I give myself all the Mountain Dew I want. Because I love me. But let's be honest. Don't we all men love ourselves really a lot? If you're not loving your wife more than you love yourself, you're not doing it right. And then it says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Hey, we need a medic. We need somebody. Yeah, let's make some space here. How cool is that? We need somebody medical and half the church moves. I can drink as much Mountain Dew as I want. There's like 28 people ready to shock my heart back into rhythm. Okay, we're going to bring this back on track here. Okay, we're going to bring this back on track. Because we got to finish this. Because Paul had a lot to say about marriage too. Not only do you say that in Ephesians 5, but in 1 Corinthians 7. And so let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Those of you who are watching online, we just had somebody with a medical little blip there. They're taking him out in the hallway. He's, he's, he's doing okay, okay? We didn't just have a shooter or anything like that walk in the room. We're good. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul had a lot to say about it. In verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, this is, this is a response to a question that was sent to him. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may desire devote yourselves to prayer and then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let me just deal with something really bluntly here. Does God care whether or not you have sex in your marriage? You better believe he does. You better believe he does. Part of the reason I think the American church has marriage and remarriage and divorce wrong is is because we don't talk about it from the pulpit. How God expects you, if you're married, to have a healthy, happy, frequent sexual relationship with your spouse. Amen. That's not perverted or dirty. And if you're not doing that, you're disobeying the word of God. And what you're doing is you're creating a condition whereby your marriage can easily erode and fall apart. You don't understand, Pastor Dan. You don't get it. She's been as cold as ice since she was 24 years old. You ain't no hunk of burning love. And what's happened is, is we have allowed the world to define what sex looks like, and we have gotten it all wrong, church. I mean, there's only one Tom Cruise in the world. There's only one George Clooney, women. Get over it. Okay? God bluntly talks about the need for a sexual relationship in marriage. And that's key to our understanding of this passage. But then Paul deals with why marriages fall apart. 
Notice he says to the unmarried, verse 8, and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, you think God talks bluntly about sex? He's like, if you can't, if you can't keep yourself back, then you probably need to get married. Then he says in verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Paul's saying here, this is not my opinion, this is God speaking through me, that the wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Here's what what he's saying. Here's God's ideal standard for marriages. We don't separate. We We don't break apart what God has put together. And if you do, neither one of you get remarried unless you want to reconcile back to one another. Isn't it a beautiful thing when God puts marriages back together. I love that. To the rest, verse 12, I say, I, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Guess what? Maybe let's just say 20 years ago, you got married. Both were unbelievers and one got saved and one is still an unbeliever. doesn't mean like, okay, that's it. You're out of the pool now. Verse 13, if a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Not made saved, but but there is some spiritual benefit for that man. It doesn't mean he's saved. What it means is there's spiritual benefit. So if you're married to an unbeliever, stay in it, folks. Stay in it. There's spiritual benefit there. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. doesn't mean your children are saved, but what he's saying is there's spiritual benefit for your kids as well. What he's saying is it's better to stay married with, with, a, with a mother and a father, and at least one of them is a believer, than to go through a divorce. And that's one of the great tragedies of divorce that often gets overlooked is what it does to the kids. And many of you here were those kids at one point in your life and you still bear the scars as adults because of the divorce that you went through. Am I right? But notice verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. You're not enslaved. You know what Paul's saying there? If your unbelieving partner leaves you, you're free to remarry. So I see then, you take Jesus, what was Jesus' allowance for divorce and remarriage? Adultery. And now Paul says abandonment, just to keep the A thing here. Adultery and abandonment. You're you're not enslaved, you're free to remarry. The question then comes up is, what about professing believers who leave their spouses? Because what does it say there clearly in verse 15? It's an unbelieving partner. How do we handle that? How do we handle that? What about a professing believer, a man or a woman who says, that's it, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, I'm I'm, I'm done, I can't do it. If a pressing believer is confronted in their sin and they don't repent of it, how does the Bible say we're supposed to treat them? How do we treat them? What does the Bible clearly say? We treat them as a what? An unbeliever. You say, PD, what do you mean by abandonment? Is it just when somebody physically leaves? I think there are many couples that I have counseled in the course of my life where they have been physically together, yet one has abandoned the other. You say, what do you mean by that? Maybe they've abandoned their responsibilities. Maybe they've abandoned, maybe they've abandoned their, their sense of their understanding and, and the protection of their spouse. Wives, if your husband is physically abusing you or husbands, if your wife is physically abusing you, they are abandoning you. Say, PD, what do you do in those situations? I recommend that they separate for a period of time and that we can work through it. And if we can't work through it to bring it back together, then then the unthinkable has to happen. I'm not advocating we just throw it away because your husband yelled at you one time. Maybe you really did burn the gravy on Thanksgiving. 
Just teasing. But let's understand something here. Time is short. And I want, you, I, want you to, I want you to grasp a couple things as we wrap up this morning. God hates divorce. Are we clear on that? God hates it. He, he, he hates what it does to lives. It hates how it disparages his design for marriage. He, he, he hates every bit about it. He hates the children that are crying in their beds at night because their moms and their dads can't work it out. He hates that. God hates divorce. And because God hates divorce, those of us in this room who are married, we had better really put our whole heart into our marriages. We had better put our whole hearts into our marriages because God hates divorce. And we better hate it as much as he hates it. But that same intensity that God hates divorce, he loves those who have been affected by it and who are being affected by it. If we truly hate divorce, then we will love the ones who have been affected by it. Let me say that again. If we truly hate divorce, we will absolutely love those who are being affected by it. Those of you who work in Awana, try this. Try this over the next couple of months. If your kids are old enough, ask them how many of them have a mommy and daddy at home, and you're going to be heartbroken at how many come from single homes. And so your little Johnny who's disruptive one night may have come from a situation where, where his home life is just wretched. Who better to love that person than, than, than Christ church? In church, we have got to stop treating those who have been through divorce as though they are the redheaded stepchildren of Jesus' church. What about those who were divorced prior to salvation? Can I say this to you? Leave it at the cross. That's where you leave it, right? You leave it at the cross. Isn't that where you left all the rest of your sin? Right? Isn't that where you left it? I hope you did. What about those who were divorced after salvation? Can I give you the same advice? Leave it at the cross. Either we believe in this grace that we sang about or we don't. Now, Depending on the situation depends on whether or not God says you're free to remarry or not. In church, we have got to stop making marriage as this big M God that we all worship. We worship something far greater than marriage. We worship the, the almighty holy one who created it all. What are the two cases that the Bible clearly allows for divorce? I want you to know this when you leave here. What's number one that we saw? Adultery. What's number two? Abandonment. If you're in an abusive situation, should you stay in it? No, you shouldn't. But I want to tell you, adultery and abandonment are the fruit many times of, of neglect that both spouses contribute to. I know the stereotype is, is that a man suddenly reaches that, 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 those years of crisis in his life when he has to like experience his like second spring or whatever that happens to a man and get his new Corvette and get his new trophy wife. But let's understand something. Behind that, there was a woman who wasn't doing her job too. No marriage just falls apart because one person does it. It's the fruit of neglect. And Christ's church needs to be a place where we are encouraging strong marriages. But we're also ready to deal with those that are, that are falling apart. We need to be ready to do both. So what's the sum total of this? Marriage is pretty important. Marriage is pretty important. And if you're married now, you need to work to stay married. And if you're not married, you need to really think hard before you do. You really do. Because it is a lifelong commitment. It is a lifelong commitment that, that God himself is involved in. Remember Malachi, it's his spirit that gets involved to make two one. 
And maybe you're in a situation now in a marriage where, where your marriage feels anything but, but two being one, then you need to plead with God's Spirit to come get involved and make that marriage one. And sometimes you need help with that. Sometimes you need someone just to put an arm around you, open up the Word of God to encourage you, to love you as you're going through that. Should you find that in Jesus' church? Yeah, you should. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, PD, you're describing my marriage. My marriage is, is two individuals headed off this direction. We're not one. Sometimes you just need to sit down with somebody with the Word of God and work that through. That's why God's given you elders, to be able to do that. Father, we pray for Neil this morning. Lord, I don't know what's going on, but, but I know this, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and I, and I know that he's getting good care even from people in our own church. Pray that you would raise him up. And Lord, I pray for the marriages in our church. I pray for those right now that are going through some really rocky times in our marriage, in their marriages, God. Our hearts hurt for them. We hurt for the kids who are involved. We hurt, we hurt for the lives that are being hurt. And God, we pray that your grace would prevail. Lord, I pray for couples in this church that they would be committed to their marriages. Adultery and abandonment don't just happen overnight. They happen from weeks and months and sometimes years of neglect. I pray that every husband would, would love his wife more than he loves himself. I pray that, that our wives would find husbands to be respectable and that they would joyfully respect their husbands. Lord, for those who are single, I know it's a hard thing to be single. I pray for your grace. But I pray that they wouldn't believe the lie that marriage is everything. God, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the time this morning that we've had to unpack these truths. May you be glorified, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand?